I think we tend, I, I know I do, and I think I share this with others, I think we tend to expect that our life and our choices will get easier as we grow older. Like, we'll get better at it. And we won't make mistakes, and we won't make the same mistake we did when we were 30, etc. And I find that, although I've learned my way to, in making through more snares of life than I did when I was 30, there seem to be altogether new ways in which I find to get myself into trouble. You know? It's like, I make up new ways. I fall into different traps and different snares <laughs> than I did. So today, I want to look with you at some of the choices, some of the final choices of Paul on this great journey. And this will be the last in this short series of, of teachings as a, as a prisoner as he went to Rome. Francis Schaeffer, back in the 80s, mostly 70s, wrote and spoke extensively. Not everyone has read Francis Schaeffer. I would recommend his writings. He was a, he was a great man and uh, really had a, a big heart. I think what you could compare him to would be a Ravi Zacharias, someone like that. Um, just really wise. And Francis Schaeffer wrote and spoke extensively on a very central and timeless question, series of books and studies and, and teachings on this subject, which is a question, how shall we then live? You have any of those books in your personal library? How shall we then live? Good question. The title of this present little series that I'm teaching suggests that our trials can become our treasures. But I want to caution you about that because that possibility only, only happens when we make um, choices that are in line with God's covenant of kingdom living. How shall we then live? You're not going to get to Tulsa by heading south. You get to Tulsa by heading north. Uh, John Maxwell says... Too many people have uphill dreams and downhill habits in their life. I think that's very true. Uphill dreams, downhill habits. We are here. <laughs> Welcome to 2020. We are here. Like it or not, we're here at this time. We're in a world that sometimes seems bizarre, I don't know, to me, sometimes it seems upside down. Uh, sometimes it simply is surprising to me. I find myself just shaking my head and saying, what? Even the article that you have with the bulletin this morning about burning Bibles in, in Portland. I mean, I, I know I should have been prepared for that, but I wasn't. I wasn't. I just shook my head when I read that article. And I, I went, Really? So they see the, the Bible as so obstructionist to their views that it needs to be burned in Portland, Oregon. One of my favorite cities, by the way. 
I love Portland. When we pastored in Eureka, Portland, Oregon was the closest larger city that we traveled to because we were in the far north of California. Wow. I just shake my head uh, when I saw that um, Kanye West, I, I, wasn't dis I wasn't surprised at all that he was saying that he was going to uh, run for president in this upcoming election. But, and, and then I, so I read the whole article and, and he said, so I've been asked, what, what, am I going to run for as a Democrat or Republican? And he said, neither one. I'm going to create my own party. And so I'm going to call it the birthday party. And I just went, that is so bizarro. I just, I don't know, sometimes it just makes me laugh. And maybe that's his whole point, just to make me laugh. But we are here, as, as we keep saying, it is what it is, and there's no escaping this reality. So, as Francis Schaeffer said, again, how shall we then live? How should we then live? What kind of choices are we called to make? I'm seeing some final choices which Paul made on his journey, each hinging on a choice of his heart before he ever began that journey. Did you hear that kind of deeply? The choices were made deeply in his heart before the journey ever happened. We need to prepare our heart ahead, not wait till we're in the middle of the storm. But his choices on board that ship that was sinking had to do with choices he had made in the trenches of life, how he had determined to live. I want to talk about some of those choices. The first choice I deduced, and I'm... I'm going to tell you the reason why. But the first choice was to be faithful to his own heart. I have had the privilege of coaching, I don't know how many people, quite a number of people, in preparing them for licensing in our Foursquare um, Fellowship. And one thing I virtually, and I used, to, I used to say this to my classes at Christ for the Nations also when I taught there. One of the things I virtually always say, and I used to say it to my classes, because I taught subjects like pastoral epistles and biblical counseling and subjects like that, is I would say to my classes, and I say to those I'm preparing for licensing, you have to get hold of your own heart and decide what you really believe. You've got to get hold of your own heart. What are the anchor points in which you can fasten your heart? I believe this. And then you've got to add the words, no matter what. Because it's going to be shaken. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I believe this, no matter what. Got to get hold of those things. Because Paul was unshaken in his confidence in God. And because of that, he found favor with unrighteous, ungodly, heathen leaders in the middle of this storm. In Acts 27, 39, it says, when, I was, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach under which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. In other words, they just let them go. Didn't have an anchor anymore. 
Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail. Can you get a picture of this? By the way, it's interesting just on the side, a footnote. This chapter in Acts 28 where it's talking about the ship and all that has the most single Greek words that are used nowhere else in the whole New Testament. Because there's so much about the rigging and the ship and different things. It's, it's full of words that are used nowhere else in the New Testament. Just thought you'd be interested in that as a little footnote. So they let go of the anchors, they loosed the rudders, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Get a picture of this? This is, this is desperate. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim ashore and escape. Remember I mentioned that last week. I said how he released Paul to visit his friends. If Paul didn't come back to the ship, that centurion would have been killed. That's why they said their plan was, the soldier's plan that we're overseeing this, is we've got to kill all these guys because if they get away, it's going to be on us and we're going to be killed. Their life was on the line. But the centurion wanting to save Paul. Now, I want to pause there. The centurion wanting to save Paul. This is a heathen man. This is a, a, a man didn't get there by collecting green stamps. He did not get to that place in the, in the Roman um, hierarchy. Anyway, other than a very violent, rough, path that he had taken. You, these were tough guys. These were tough guys. These were guys that were hardened to blood. They were hardened to death. They were just tough guys. Rough, rough, rough guys. But he wanted to save Paul, and he kept them from their purpose. He kept them from killing all of them. There's about 200 and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Why did this rough, calloused, hardened centurion care so much about this one prisoner that he actually had mercy on all the others as well who were on board? And it was because Paul had operated in such integrity and had operated in such a deep well of faithfulness and integrity in his life that this man saw him as an anchor in the storm. He realized. He realized that he was dealing with a man who was not ruled by his environment. He was ruled from within. And he couldn't help but respect that. He saw a fairness and an evenness in Paul which he admired. See, family, we, we have a choice in the storms of life of being a lifeboat to our family and our loved ones and people that we work with or being a dead weight of discouragement and fear. We have to make a choice in that of being one or the other. You can be a lifeboat, or you can be like an anchor, 
dropped in the water, just discouraging to everybody else that's around you, just always having a negative word, always just down, down, down. And that discouragement is not God deciding to punish us. That is reaping what we sow. That's all that is. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. I had an experience this last week. I'm trying to remember on least. I guess it was last Monday when I came over to cut the limbs on your trees. So Annalisa, we recently had a storm uh, a few weeks earlier, and I, she had told me that she had some trees that, were, had, that had gone down. The wind was about, I don't know, 65 miles an hour, something like that. It wasn't a hugely bad, it wasn't like a hurricane, but I think a hurricane starts at 70, so it was a pretty bad storm. And um, she has a cluster of four very, very beautiful oak trees in her backyard, and each of these oak trees, just to give you an idea, the trunk at the base, we say at least it's about like that, the trunk of the base of each of these oak trees. And they're just growing up beautifully in the very beautiful trees. And she said, um, she told me, she said, three of my trees just went down in that storm. And I had seen these trees. And, and they're, uh, I think they're Texas red oaks by looking at the leaves. I think that's what they are. Which is a very good tree. It's a very good tree. And um, I said, really? She said, yeah, they went down. Three out of four. Wow, that's unusual. What? I don't understand that. That's really something. So this last, this last weekend, I guess, 10 days ago, I was over there, and I just went over and looked at them. And I looked in there at the base of these. Now, it's just like if you could imagine, here's this one tree standing, and these other three are just splayed out, like here, here, and here. Just exactly like that, just out, laying on the ground, laying across her fence, laying across other trees, etc. And I went and I looked at the base of the trees, and I was absolutely amazed because those three trees that went down. Now, an oak tree is a taproot tree. You guys know that, don't you? You plant an acorn, puts a taproot down, that's an oak tree. These three trees did not have a taproot. No. I, I don't know. They, they had roots that ex extended out. They all had roots that extended out. But they didn't have a taproot. The one tree that remained, stand, that remained standing had a taproot. I could see it. In that rocky Cedar Hill soil, it had put a taproot down. So in the storm, those other three just went boom. There's one tree with a taproot. Still standing. Now here's the interesting part about this illustration. They all three looked the same above the ground beforehand. Those other three, I don't know what happened to the taproot. They, any oak tree has a taproot, so, but they didn't. And I don't know whether it just, because of this, the, the hard ground there, I mean, it was not just hard, but rock, heavy rock right underneath there. I don't know whether those trees just adapted naturally and just couldn't, couldn't put down the taproot. So they put down roots that went out, but that one tree got down into the rocks somehow. It got through the cracks and it got down into there so it could have a grip in the storm. Isn't that amazing? 
See, that's an illustration. That's an illustration that we ought to remember because we have a choice to remain faithful in our convictions, get a taproot that's deep into the rocks of what we believe. So we'll stand in the storm. I think that'll preach. Or as my friend from Georgia used to say, that dog will hunt. The second lesson, second choice. Choose to serve even when it's not comfortable. Paul chose, Paul chose to serve even in discomfort. Acts 28. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. I want to talk about the, the viper a little bit later, but there's something else that I love here that I want to talk about first. Get the scene. It's raining. It's cold. Um, they had to swim to shore. They're shivering cold. They are wet to the bone. Have you ever been in a situation like that where just, I mean, wet to the bone, it's cold rain, and Paul had some cred with these guys that he's traveling. By this time, he had some cred with them. He could have said, um, some of you guys need to go out there and get some wood. I'm going to stay here and pray for you. Yeah, he could have said that, and it would have been, seemed, it would have seemed completely normal and no problem. Instead, he's out there gathering sticks. Now, keep in mind, there's over 200 guys, 200 able-bodied men, 270, I think it was, on this ship. Here's Paul out there gathering sticks to make a fire, doing a menial task in a very uncomfortable circumstance. I want to make a point here. I think we love comfort too much. I think we love comfort too much. Remember when Jonah was so happy and pleased that a plant had grown to give him shade? Oh man, he loved his comfort. That plant to Jonah was the equivalent of air conditioning. Really. I mean, it's like when your air conditioner goes down in July and August, you get the guy on the phone and you say, I need you to come and fix it. You don't say, how much is it going to cost? Because if it's over $30, I'm not going to have you come. Say, come and fix it. I'll borrow money. Get my air conditioner fixed. Texans get pretty serious about it. When we moved here from California, I'd never been in such a cold place in the grocery stores. I mean, I went inside Kroger. When we moved here from California, I went inside Kroger. I wanted to get my coat on in the summertime. It was so, it was hot. It was 1988. And that was a hot summer. It was very hot. And, and yet, in the grocery store, it was the coldest place. I'd ever, and I mean, I, I felt like we needed to butcher, hang beef. It's, you know. So when God sent a worm to eat the plant that was Jonah's air conditioner, he was livid with God. He said, God, what are you doing? He was so angry. And he actually said, I want to die. 
Four times, by the way, Jonah said, I want to die in the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters, and four times he says, I want to die. Do you know what God was doing? He was dealing with Jonah's heart because Jonah loved his own view and his own comfort far too much. I want it like this. And God was weaning him off of that attitude of demand in what God would do. I've been on mission trips with people who see the team as their personal servants, and I, I've, I've been chagrined when I've seen that. I've been on mission trips where a, a, a team leader will say, um, um, you, you over there, Andy, uh, go down and get my luggage down in the lobby and bring it up here. And you're supposed to just do that right now. He said do it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, Marceline, uh, go get me a, a bottle of water, please, right now. And I mean, you're supposed to, oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, got to do it. I've seen those kinds of team leaders, and it always bothers me. See, we see here the greatest apostle of that day gathering sticks in the shivering cold. Let's be more like that. Let's be more like that, you know? Not so, not so focused on our comfort. Do hard things. Have you read that little book, Do Hard Things? Mm, written by those twins. I can't think of their name. Yeah. Third choice. He chose not to be a complainer. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man's a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. See, they were very superstitious and, and just uh, very um, crude in their beliefs. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. When bad things happen, especially when they happen in clusters, we tend to complain. And, and have you ever noticed how bad things seem to happen in clusters? The car breaks down, the air conditioning breaks, the this happens, the refrigerator or something else. It's like things seem to happen in clusters. And here's Paul. He's been through a disastrous shipwreck, really, really tough. God has not given them a break with the weather. Lord, what are you doing here? I'm freezing, and we don't have anything. He's, he's on shore with over 200 men, and duh, nobody thinks to get sticks for a fire except the apostle, who's probably older than the rest of them, out there gathering sticks for the fire. Got 270 men, and nobody but Paul seems to be gathering sticks. Anyway, he's out there. He's trying to make a fire. He says, look, let's, let's do something here. And now he gets bit by this poisonous snake, which, by the way, is incredibly painful. Not that I've experienced it, but it has to be incredibly painful to have a viper attach itself and hang from your arm. That's tough. That's painful. And I'm telling you, at a time like that, there's a tendency to just sit down, curl up into a fetal position, and feel sorry for yourself. But instead... He mans up, he takes the pain, and he refuses to blame God or get down on himself. Either one. 
You know what we have to realize at times like that? We have to realize that every one of us has bad things happen to our life. Nobody dodges. Everybody has bad things happen in our life. Death and loss and pain come knocking at the door of every single person. When I was going through my own trial um, last year, I was very focused at first on my loss and how I was going to survive. And one of the things that the Lord began to remind me of is that although not everyone had gone through what I was going through, but loss is a part of everybody's life. Everybody has lost a job, lost a limb, lost an ability, lost an ability to think clearly, lost an ability to, for your body to do what you want it to do. Everybody has experienced loss. And I wasn't experiencing anything that was not common to man. Death is part of that loss too. But there's a toughness that is missing in many. And I think largely because many have not had an example of a father who didn't allow himself to be ruled by pain and discomfort. We can hire someone to do the work in the heat. We can hire someone to tend our plants. We can hire someone to trim our trees. If we could, we'd hire someone to have a healthy diet for us, I think. Paul's speaking of both men and women when he says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. When we get snake bit in life, just something out of nowhere, didn't plan on it, we get snake bit in life, we have to choose not to be a complainer. We have to choose to be bold and be strong. That's not something that's just you're just gifted with. You make the choice to be bold and be strong. Like Joshua said, be strong and be courageous. You know, I saw, I saw an example of that just yesterday morning when I hope you're Zooming right now, Joe Turner showed up for the council meeting. And he's, he's still trying to adjust to the chemotherapy that he's on for his leukemia. And he showed up for the council meeting, and he was, he was struggling with it. But he showed up strong and courageous, and he didn't put some kind of complaining, bitter stress upon us. He just showed up like a man. I appreciated that so much. Here's another choice. We have to choose not to allow our heart to be ruled by either ridicule or reverence. First they said, Paul must be a murderer because they snake bit him. And then when he shook it off into a fire, they said, he must be a god. <laughs> Always makes me laugh. A few times in my life, not very many, but a few times, I've been referred to as apostolic. I've been referred to as a pastor of pastors, sometimes even a prophetic voice. And we've got to be very careful with that kind of stuff. Because people will say things and we'll tend to get it into our heart. And we can't embrace those sort of headlines that people will tend to put upon us like that. 
There's a great line in Rudyard Kipling's um, great poetic piece called If. And when I got to this part in the study, I remembered it. I remembered it. I don't know if I... No, I didn't put it up there. Here's the line. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Hear that? Meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And then he finishes with this line at the end of the poem. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Powerful word. I almost read the whole thing this morning, but it's pretty long. Triumph and disaster. Treat those two imposters just the same. Because when we get snake bit in life, some people are going to say, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Something must be wrong with her. I remember when I lost my voice, I had people writing me letters from... Oklahoma and Texas and all over California telling me that I, must, I, I need to fast more. I must have some kind of sin in my life. I must have done something that God's punishing me for. I mean, I got that stuff from, and I would go to a church to speak, and I had to whisper because my voice was gone. And uh, people would come to me afterward and say, um, this has to be something that God's done in your life. And what's, what, what is, you know, what is, has the Lord shown you what it is? I had to stand, man, I had to stand in some tough places during that time to be convinced that I was not going to be ruled by that thing. So when you're doing well in life, those, some, uh, when you get snake bit, people are going to say something's wrong. When you're doing well in life, those same ones are going to try to make you something that you're not. Oh, be careful about that one. They'll put you on a pedestal. David Wilkerson once wrote, he said, one of the greatest dangers today in the church is that we put people on pedestals, and then when they make a mistake, we knock them down. Boy. We tend to take credit sometimes when good things happen. Well, I just stood there and I rebuked the devil, and things changed and things turned around. I just said, no, Satan. Or I stood there and I told that person. And you know what the fact is? Sometimes... Good things happen, we just happen to be there. You know, sometimes good things happen, God just shows mercy in that situation, and we just happen to be there, and we take the credit for it. We say, I prayed that prayer of faith, and I did this, and I did that. You know, we've got to be careful with that stuff. Listen to me when I say this to you. You're probably not as good as a lot of people think you are, but you're probably not as bad as some people think you are either. So just keep it in balance. You know, keep your head. Don't be pressured by either of those imposters because they're both founded in foolish suppositions. Keep your head straight. Keep your head on straight. Number five, he chose to serve and help where he found himself. In that region, there was an estate of a leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. Here's a bit of advice uh, concerning Paul in this situation. Be a friend to the world. Don't be like the world. But be a friend to the world. Wait for the door to open. Don't try to, don't try to trap people in some kind of scheme. 
I'll tell you something about the world today. I'll, I'll tell you something about millennials that I do appreciate. They can smell a trap or a scheme a mile away. And they flee in the opposite direction. Or gave, they give no cred to that person. They can smell a scheme. That's why a lot of millennials have forsaken the church. is because they feel entrapment there. They feel a scheme working out. Just be there. Just be kind. Just be yourself. You know, I was interested. Um, hopefully, we'll, we, maybe we'll get on track with this. I don't know we're considering it right now, and I'm looking at Harrison and Cindy as I'm saying this. But I was interested as I, as I listened to um, the gentleman, Nikki Gumble, Nikki Gumble. I was listening to him online, and he looks like that uh, Dr. Fauci that's reporting to our nation, you know? And, and he looks like him. He's an older guy. He, he's, he's, he's a little disheveled in his dress. He's kind of wrinkled collar. And, and uh, it was real funny. I told Harrison when I was talking to Harrison about him, I said, he's British. Harrison does, said, does he have big teeth? I said, yeah, he does. And he said, yeah, a lot of British people have that, big teeth. I lived in England, and I never thought of it before. He's exactly right. He said, the guy has big teeth. I never noticed it before. <laughs> anyway, I was interested because his appeal was very much to millennials. Very much to millennials. And what it, what it said to me again that age is not the issue. Authenticity is the issue. Authenticity is the issue. I have a book called The Passion Generation. It'd be good for anybody to read it. It's, it's, it's written by a guy that has a word for millennials. He is a millennial himself, and I mean, it's, it's an excellent book. It'll open your eyes. And that's what he says. he says. He says age is not an issue to millennials. Authenticity is the issue. So Paul was a friend of sinners. He drew close to them. It doesn't say he had some kind of scheme or entrapment for this man that was sick. It just says he went into him, and it says he healed him. Now, we're real quick today, and I've, I've taught in other countries, especially when I've taught, and people kind of put you up on a pedestal there, and I've, uh, you know, we say things like, I'm not the healer, only Jesus is the healer, I'm just the deliverer of the message, blah, blah, blah. But do you know how many times, if we're really honest about it, do you know how many times in the Bible it says of the believers, they healed them? It's common. It's common in the New Testament. He healed him. And it's not just Jesus. It's his followers too. He cast the devil out of him. He forgave sins. Jesus gave an incredible authority to his disciples. And keep this in mind, they'd only been with him a couple of years. When he sent them out and he said this to them. He said, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Wow. See, we drill back from that. We say, oh, oh, no, 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 no. And you know what? I'm going to walk on the water a little bit here. I think in some places, I think the Catholic Church understands some things. And there is that part of the Catholic faith in which the priest forgives and the person walks away. Same thing's true. I'll, I'll use another example in the Catholic Church. 
the way they look at miracles. They don't just say, oh, wow, he came up and he had a testimony. And it turns out two days later that the person is still sick and never got healed at all. They don't do that. You know what they do? They check the miracles out before they ever report them. They check them out thoroughly. They have other people that are objective look in on it. Check the doctor's records. See? So some things, you know, the Bible says sometimes the children of this generation are wiser than the children of light. It's true. Sometimes. So Jesus gave authority to his disciples. Here's a conclusion I've come to through the years. I'm getting a little long this morning here. Sorry, long in the tooth. British. Um, <laughs> we make people well or we make them sicker. I really, I, I mean, I think we make people well sometimes or we make them sicker by our words. It's not just our prayers. It's not just our faith. By our words, our actions, even our body language, our attitude sometimes makes people sicker. Listen, God has called us to be healers, not judgmental herders that go around the chip on our shoulder trying to prove something. Um, when Jesus, or, I mean, when God called Ezekiel in the Old Testament, chapter 2. I think I've got that. Yeah. He commanded him to stand up like a man. Here's Ezekiel on the ground covering himself like, Ugh. God says, stand up like a man. I want to talk to you. Son of man, stand on your feet and I'll speak to you. See, God wants us to have confidence, not arrogance. Not an arrogance about ourselves or what we've done or boastfulness, but confidence. Confidence in the Lord. And confidence in what he has made you to be. Listen, Ezekiel had to take God's message to a whole generation that didn't believe him and didn't want to hear him. Now think about that for a moment. Ezekiel was called to bring a message to a generation that didn't believe in him and didn't want to hear him. And I tell you what, it takes a confidence in what God says about me to take his message to a generation that doesn't want to hear it and doesn't like me. We better fasten our seatbelt for that one. We better fasten our seatbelt for that one. Because I think that's coming down the road. I think it's pretty fast. In closing, I just want to mention... Four things very quick that Paul did here with, with the father of Publius. Number one, he went to him. He didn't sit there praying and say, well, if he comes to me, I'll consider it God's will. Well, I think I, I feel like I should go down with Ron to, uh, to International Street Church on a first Friday. But, you know, if, um, if, if the Holy Spirit just leads me specifically, then I'll go. It just says Paul went. Sometimes you just got to show up. I was so glad I showed up. This last Friday down at Street Church, what a blessing. What a great message Ron brought. What a great blessing it was to be there to Pastor Karen and those folks down there. We had a little lady right behind me over against a wall with a blanket and a pillow there, laying there. I, don't, I, I never did talk to her. could have talked to others. But I thought, this is good for me. This is good for me to be in the middle of this mission field right here. 
right here in our doorstep. We need to be more like Jonathan. You remember when Jonathan said, yeah, there's a steep bank between us and those Philistines. And he said to his armor bearer, he said, you're ready to crawl up with me and we'll just see what God will do. And the armor bearer says, I'm with you, buddy. You go up. I'm there with you. And God blessed him and God helped him. But his whole message was, let's see what God will do. Just show up. The second thing was, he prayed for him. Do you know what? Listen, the world needs to hear the prayer of a spirit-filled man and a spirit-filled woman. And if God prompts you to pray in the spirit, when you're praying with someone, let it happen. Do you remember that the Bible says that tongues is a sign to the unbeliever? It's not made to be captured in the sanctuary. Sometimes God has called me. I'll just, it'll just start happening. I'll be in a hospital somewhere and on the elevator with somebody, and I'll begin to pray for him, and I'll just start praying in tongues. I've never had... Now, I know you could get somebody. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I have never personally had anyone ever flee like they're afraid, or most of the time, they just are very moved by the Holy Spirit. Number three, he laid his hands on him. What does Mark 16 say? It says, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. I don't know how many people with needs during this whole um, COVID-19 epidemic, this whole outbreak, I don't know how many people with needs that I have been with and I've said to them in, in my home, in public, before and after services, I have said, is it okay for me to lay hands on you? I have not been turned down one time. I've not had one person say, nope, nope, don't touch me. Every time I've asked that, the person has said to me, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Please do. And then the fourth thing is what I just mentioned. He healed him. We are called to be healers, not sickness carriers. We're called to carry something very contagious it's called healing. It's called the Word of God. It's called the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the contagious thing that we're called to carry. This is not a mask, no mask, shield, no shield, gloves, no gloves thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about walking in the Spirit. I'm talking about just letting the Holy Spirit use us regardless of the circumstance. We are here. We are here. It is what it is. Let's make some choices. Hallelujah.